All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin. Today, I am joined by repeat guest Eric Bezmatian, the founder of EPB Research. Eric, welcome back to the show. Hey, Mike, good to be here. And I got to say, congratulations to Blockworks, all the success that you guys have been having, super well-deserved. You guys are definitely putting out uh, some of the best financial content out there right now. So congrats. Oh, thanks, Eric. I really appreciate that. Um, all right, so let, let's just like get right into it here. I always enjoy our conversations because I think you know, out of all the people that we bring on the show, you just have such a methodical way when it comes to thinking about markets and the processes that drive markets. So sort of looking at the the top of your last note here, and you start with a pretty, pretty stark statement, which is from a business cycle perspective, there is no way to characterize a recession other than imminent. Can you break that down a little bit for us? Sure. So I'll, I'll take a step back and sort of review a high level of my process and how I sort of arrive at these conclusions. So um, a lot of people are familiar with the terminology of like leading indicators, coincident indicators, and lagging indicators, or, or separating economic data into buckets. I think that's extremely useful. And what I do is I separate them into what I call the leading economy or leading indicators, the cyclical economy, and then the total economy. The leading economy is, of course, all of your traditional leading indicators, like your building permits and your, your general availability of money and credit, highly influenced by things like monetary policy. Your cyclical economy is your construction and manufacturing sector, most specifically. Almost every recession is born in the construction and manufacturing sector. So it's extremely important to get a good handle on exactly what's happening in that part of the economy. It also tends to uh, be most, most reactive to changes in monetary policy and the leading indicators. So what happens in the cyclical economy tends to impact the total economy or the broad economy, which would be our third bucket. That third bucket, that total economy is where your non-farm payrolls, your wages, your um, consumption, all of your big indicators um, fall in that last total economy bucket. Um, so what I do in my process is I, is I bucket various indicators into these composite indexes. And the reason I do that is because at any given time, uh, you can have what is a reliable leading indicator, let's say, and it could work nine out of 10 times going back across time, but you'll never find a indicator that has a 100% track record, particularly when you go back and look at cycles going back five, six, seven decades. Um, but what you can do is you can filter out a lot of these leading indicators that have 85, 90% success rates and aggregate them into one larger composite. And the reason that that's helpful is because if any one indicator has that moment where it fails, it's extremely unlikely that the basket of 10 will all fail collectively. So when you look at the indicators separated into the sequence, leading cyclical total, and you have them sort of aggregated with a basket of indicators, that sequence, that breath really helps you filter out false signals. So when I make the statement that a recession is imminent or there's no other way to characterize a recession other than imminent um, or perhaps even already underway, what I'm doing is I'm taking that information from firstly my basket of leading indicators or the leading economy. And any uh, basket of leading indicators that you pick, we'll take the conference board leading index as an example that most people are familiar with, that index is contracting uh, very significantly, something like a negative seven, negative 8% growth rate, levels of growth that are not seen outside of recessions almost ever. And when you look at the, the, the breadth or the diffusion of how many of those leading indicators are signaling that very deep contraction, it's almost all of them. It's certainly over 50%. It's closer to, to about 90% of those leading indicators are signaling that message. So you have this setup where the leading economy is fully in recession and looks like a deep one at that. The cyclical economy has slowed to below trend, not quite contracting, but close to contraction. And then the total economy has also slowed to below trend. So the next step for the cyclical economy is to move below zero or into a recession. And then the same thing for the total economy. That setup has never going back to the 1960s, has never concluded in a non-recessionary event. Uh, and the timing of which is um, 
is, is indicative of the fact that the recession is either uh, most likely underway or will be underway very shortly. Uh, it's very difficult to, to, to determine these things in real time because we're dealing with data that's revised and, and changes to some extent. Um, so that's, that's how I end up with that statement of there's no other way to characterize the current state of the business cycle other than an imminent recession because the leading economy is deeply recessionary. We're fractions away from the cyclical economy being in a recession. And when those two things happen, it's almost always that the economy is, is already in the throes of a recession. So we've sort of got these these warning signs, right? This bright alarm flaring and the sign of these more leading indicators, right? I think the statistic that users about ninety percent of those indicators are flashing the warning sign. Mm-hmm. All right, let's let's focus in a little bit on the cyclical economy, which, as you just mentioned, is primarily determined by construction. And you know, on previous episodes, you've given me this phrase, right? It's it's you know kind of talked about pretty widely, but housing is the economy, mm-hmm. right? Housing is one of those funny things where as soon as mortgage rates started to tick up. One kind of rubbed their hands together like this and said, "Oh boy, this is it for housing, right?" right. Uh, suddenly, Americans can afford, you know, not nearly the mortgage they could when you know mortgages were getting clipped at two percent or whatever. Mm-hmm. But we haven't really seen a gigantic implosion in terms of residential housing. So, can you kind of just walk mm-hmm. walk us through what's going on in the world of construction, housing starts, et cetera? Sure. So, um, I, I agree with the with the general comment that housing is the business cycle, and that's intentionally a reductionist statement. It's really just trying to draw emphasis to the fact that the uh, residential construction cycle or the construction of, of single family homes, multifamily apartments is, um, is a extremely important determinant of where the broader economy goes because it's most directly impacted by monetary policy. And it's what we call a high multiplier sector, meaning that it has uh, feed throughs to a lot of other sectors. For example, uh, the retail sales of furnishing a new home with uh, maybe furniture or appliances, the, the trucking that's necessary for transporting those goods to and from the new construction, all of the things like that are what we call a high multiplier sector. So when we're looking at the housing cycle, we have to separate a couple of things. We first have to separate price. A lot of people first gravitate towards price when we talk about housing. And housing prices are much more akin to inflation. You can think of it as home price inflation. And we know that inflation is more of a lagging indicator. So we have to stay focused on the volume of transactions and the volume of activity in the housing sector most specifically. Um, What we really want to focus on is the construction activity in the uh, residential sector. And that is primarily composed of three components. You have your single family construction, you have your multifamily apartment construction, and then you have your residential remodeling. So putting in a new kitchen or a new bathroom to an existing home. Those three components make up what we call residential fixed investment for the most part. And that is what drives the business cycle because it feeds through to construction employment and everything else. When we look at that cycle, the leading indicators mostly would be uh, things related to monetary policy and the availability of money and credit. So like the yield curve or building permits or housing starts. Those indicators are very severely negative, telling us that this residential construction activity is going to turn down. But what's happened is that the actual hammering of nails, the actual building of these buildings is still going on. And it's going on a lot longer than it has in past cycles. In my my most recent report, which I sent you, I plot the historical lag between when leading indicators turn negative and when the construction cycle turns negative. And that gap is on average about five to six months. But so far, it's been 11 months, and we've yet to see the construction sector contract in a very significant way. So this lag is about twice as long as average. It's definitely the longest on record. And when we go into the details of what's driving that, it's not the single family construction. That has turned down. The single family construction has turned down because the mortgage rates jumped up very significantly and the affordability of, new, uh, of, of a home purchase uh, is, is near record lows. But the third component is really what's keeping the cycle elevated, and that's your multifamily apartment construction. Hmm. 
But what's really interesting, Mike, is that when we look across the country, we can look at all the multifamily construction across the country, and it has turned down in all census regions except for the South. So we, we have this incredible boom that happened uh, for multifamily apartment construction, specifically in the South. And when we go back and study history, um, I'll call it a bubble or a speculative mania. These uh, bubbles, specifically in real estate investing, always originate with some genuine, true, organic demand. So you think about there was real estate speculation when they built the railroads. People speculated and built a lot of homes on the near the railroads to appreciate in value. When they built the canals, there was real estate speculation on the canals. Then we had post-COVID, we had a very true, genuine demographic shift where people moved predominantly to the Southeast region. That caused um, developers to sort of go crazy building multifamily apartments because rents had risen 20%, all these numbers penciled out, and you were able to borrow money at whatever it was, 2 or 3%. So there was an absolute explosion in the amount of multifamily construction, specifically in the South. Then the rates jumped up, but because all of this activity was already financed, it was already planned, it's taken a long time for that construction backlog to to. Uh, to clear, even though there's no new projects in the pipeline, as we know from the permit activity. Um, and when we go into the, the data in a little bit more detail, we can, we can basically tease out that we're just about done with that uh, Southern multifamily boom. It's likely to turn down in the next two to three months because the Southern multifamily permit activity has dried up about six months ago. Um, so that's really what's holding up the, the, the cycle what's caused it to take longer than usual. Um, it's, it's not necessarily tied to the excess savings concept or the strength of the consumer because real retail sales are, are negative 2%. They've been negative for, for several months in a row. It really is focused um, on the multifamily construction in the South. That's really been the linchpin of this entire economic cycle. You know what, Eric? I'm sort of Smiling to myself here, remembering I've actually referenced it now a couple times since this interview happened. But I had James Davolos of Horizon Kinetics on here for an interview in January of this year, and he actually told an anecdote about a colleague of his who was at, of all places, a multifamily real estate conference. And you had all these builders scrambling around, and they were trying to secure one-year financing. Mm -hmm. And the reason they were trying to secure specifically that amount of of time was because the idea was that the Fed was going to to pivot eventually, <laughs> right? They had right. To, to pivot. Right. And they just needed some sort of bridge loan or something <laughs> like that. And to just highlight, right, the the theoretical trouble that that multifamily might be in, it's actually sort of a similar similar uh problem that that banks ultimately had, right? Where their their funding in in terms of their deposits ultimately ended up leaving and fleeing. And then they they were at the asset side of their balance sheet wasn't enough to support that. In something like this, it'd be a little bit different, right? You would have a yield that you had on the the housing investment that you made. You have mm -hmm. a variable financing rate, but if the variable financing rate goes above your yield, then you are crap out of luck, right? Yeah, that's exactly right. <laughs> yeah, but capital calls end up being the forcing function as opposed to an exodus mm -hmm. of deposits. So, and we've heard we've definitely heard some anecdotes of, of things like that starting in some of these sectors. Hey everyone, we'll get back to the show in a minute, but just wanted to let you know that we've got our permissionless conference coming up. This is the one that we do with Bankless. It is the biggest and best conference in DeFi. It's going to be in Austin, Texas this year, September 11th through the 13th. If you've been in crypto for a while, you know that bear market conferences are the best conferences because those are the ones that all the alphas at. This year, we've got a phenomenal lineup of speakers and the topics that we're covering are insane. We're going to be talking about ZK Tech, Rollups, Count Abstraction, MEV, App Change, the whole suite of stuff. I cannot wait myself. So because you're a listener of this podcast, you're also going to get a discount. Type in pods20 and you're going to get 20% off your ticket. Click the link at the bottom of this episode and go get it now because prices go up every two weeks. You know, it's it's such a good point, Eric. And we were talking a little bit before we got on the podcast here about just the era of frustration here where folks, um, you know, it basically we're sort of just been levitating and, and chopping sideways. And I don't think that's fit anyone's mental model 
of mm-hmm. of where we should be right now. So you maybe just try to riff on that for a little bit of like, what is the zeitgeist for what do market mm-hmm. participants sort of think about where we are? And why, why does it just feel like we're kind of hanging in this weird limbo? Yeah, it's it's a really important point. And, and I could understand the frustration that everyone has. And, and maybe I can um, provide some context. Um, recessions and, and cycles in general are a process. They're not an event. And we were talking in the, in the, in the pre-show that you know, when people are saying, where's the recession, what they're really asking is what's the climax or where is the climax? Because that's what this recession will ultimately be known for. Oh, none of us know what that is. And you usually don't know what it is until a fair degree of, of hindsight. Um, so it's really difficult to pinpoint, you know, where that climax is going to happen, you know, what sector and, and the day it's going to happen. Um, the, the example that I gave in the pre-show is that um, we think of the recession as September of 2008, because that was the event. That was the big climax. But that event happened eight months into the recession already. So there was a process of things that happened leading up to that. And depending on where you sit in that process, in terms of you as an investor or you as an employee or you as a corporation, will determine how you feel about where the recession is or how it's developing. So for example, if you are a real estate investor, using the 2008 example, uh, you may have started to feel what you thought was a recession in the, in the beginning of 2007. Certainly by the middle of 07 and end of 07 and by the uh, beginning of 08, it was obviously big problems. But the S&P rallied to within 8% of its all-time high by May of 2008. So you could have been saying, where's the recession? We're almost back at all-time highs. Kind of sounds somewhat similar to what we're seeing today. Um, going to, to, to this economic cycle... Um, there are some clients that I have that um, are are corporates rather than you know hedge funds or investors, and a corporation takes a long time to move that ship. Those um, the the people that are in more cyclical type companies, a lot of them are already feeling the stress of their order books drying up, um, their production numbers starting to come down. So they are already feeling some of the things that we've been talking about. Similarly, a lot of real estate investors, particularly the ones on the commercial side, the time to get out of those investments could have been as as late as six or eight months ago. It would be difficult to even get out of some of these investments now. There's not a lot of liquidity in some of these areas. You're sort of trapped. Um, But if um, if you're an investor that's mostly focused in liquid public markets like the S&P 500, of course, with the recent action of the last couple of weeks, you're sitting there saying, this certainly doesn't feel like a recession. Um, so it really depends where on the spectrum you are. And I think it's important to sort of realize where you sit. And most of us, you know, 80% of us do sit in that service sector, which is not going to feel the recession until it's four, five, eight, ten 10 months underway, sometimes even almost at the end. There are a, a smaller group of us, maybe 20% of us that sit in that cyclical economy more tied to the construction, more tied to manufacturing, more tied to some of the uh, parts of the economy that have more volatility. And those people on balance definitely feel like the recession has either already started um, or they've seen the the signs of stress. So it's been a very difficult environment and and it tends to happen this way as you move from slowdown to recession because the feeling or the sentiment starts to get very divided among people who are more tethered to the leading and cyclical economy, and then more people that are tethered to the services and liquid public markets. So I think that's sort of the spectrum of where we are. And as we progress day by day, more and more people on that spectrum are starting to feel the stresses of what's a developing recession. Um, But most of us, particularly us in financial services, are kind of at the tail end of that. Yeah. There's a really great Jim Grant interview that that just aired today. So we're recording this on June 5th on Odd Lots. And, you know, to Jim, Jim writes a great uh, publication called the Grand Centrist Trade Observer. And he's got this very long career of being a financial journalist. And he made this observation, which just really resonated with me as I was listening this morning, which was, you know, something to paraphrase, there was basically like, 
things don't happen as soon as I think they ought to. And he right. used this specific example of, you know, he was looking into housing abnormalities before in, you know, five or six years before mm-hmm. 08 ended up happening. He actually right. said those six years felt like 20 year journalistic <laughs> right. years. You know, it feels right. a lot, it feels like forever when you maybe even have the right lock on something, but it's just not happening as soon as you might think. And then you have to do this yeah. hurry up and wait thing. Right. And then I also think, you know, when we study cycles and everybody looks at charts that go back to the 1960s, let's say, and it's really easy to analyze six months or a year of time in a nanosecond, right? You sort of absorb the information and you say, if I got out of the markets in the summer of 07, I would have been a hero. Um, mm. But but it's... It, <laughs> It's not Glad so to know simple. that you do that too. <laughs> right? Yeah, exactly. But it's it's not so simple because if you did get out of the market in the in the summer of 07, let's say, with all of this hindsight, you say I would have closed my eyes and and I just and I would have been fine. But there were so many things that happened along the way. For example, in the first quarter of 2008, you had retail sales that jumped. You had your ISM manufacturing and services index that rose above 50. And you had inflation that was sitting at 5% because oil rose, you know, $120, $130 a barrel. So when you go back to the Fed transcripts in the Q1 of 08 period, they actually pivoted and started to get hawkish again because the economy wasn't as bad as they thought. uh, And they were saying, we have to balance this housing situation with this inflation situation. You had Fed speakers that were saying retail sales look okay. All of a lot of things that we hear today, because these, again, in our leading cyclical total, these are things closer to the total, like retail sales and consumption. So you had a scenario where the Fed was starting to ease policy towards the end of 07, but then in the middle, in the beginning of 08, they said, you know, we, we may have to actually raise rates again. And short-term interest rates, I think it was the two-year treasury. My numbers may be slightly off, but I think it rallied from almost you know, 1.5% all the way back to 3 because they had to, the market was pricing in more cuts. And then they had to swing to not only pricing out those cuts, but pricing in potentially some hikes. That was a crazy swing. And at the same time, the S&P started to rally and got to within 8% of its all-time high in May. So at that moment, it would have been really hard to stick with your conviction of getting out in the summer of 07, even though with all this benefit of hindsight, we know that that was the right thing to do. Um, So it's not so easy when you live through these things because there's a lot of cross currents that happen and three months of time in real time is a lot different than a year looking at on a chart. And when we look at the last six months or the last eight months, and we start to try and formulate what's the story of this recession going to be, we have a common story that we tell when we talk about the 2008 recession. And that story really does begin in 2007 with the bankruptcy of some mortgage lenders. Then you had, um, you know, uh, in, in March of 08, you had significant banking bankruptcies. And you start to tell the story with things that were occurring throughout the beginning of 07, the middle of 07, the end of 07, the beginning of 08, and it sort of fits with this process of a recession. We keep saying, where's the recession today? But my suspicion is that when we have the benefit of hindsight, we'll have a lot of these pieces to the puzzle. For example, um, the, the downfall of certain uh, fraudulent scams like FTX, those are very symptomatic of you know, mm-hmm. money getting tighter. Then we have our regional banking crisis. We have a lot of these events that have popped up that will, in my opinion, certainly be part of the recessionary story that we tell. Although in real time, we're feeling like those are things that the market has overcome and we may avoid the recession. And I think the market was thinking something similar after some of the bankruptcies in Q1 of 08, when the market had that big relief rally. It just turned out to be part of our larger story. Yeah, I, I completely agree with you there, Eric. And one one question that I have for you that I've sort of been mulling over, because you're absolutely right. There have been these 
smatterings of something that looks like it might be something pranking, right? So we had FTX, and that was a you know very large fraud that took place. Then you had this stress that that rippled throughout the commercial banking system. Actually, ended up with Credit Suisse. You know, at one time a bulge bracket. You know, I think top ten bank. You know, ended up folding. Mm-hmm. So definitely more than even just just smatterings, but. You know, if if you had to if you had to take a guess, right, at what ends up ultimately making the Fed sort of change, um, you know, their monetary accommodation that they've been that they've been doing, there's kind of the way that we've been talking about, which is very cyclical, and that's mm-hmm. kind of like housing is the economy, right. and then that ultimately feeds through to retail sales, and then corporate profits, and then unemployment, and that's kind of like this orderly, right, sort of, uh, you know, right. deleveraging in the economy and then building it back up, or if something happens like 2020 where man something just breaks right, right. and maybe right. it's a pandemic or maybe it's a you know a housing mm-hmm. crisis like oh wait uh and i know those two things aren't mutually exclusive necessarily mm-hmm. but you know if you had to kind of you know how how do you see this maybe ultimately mm-hmm. ending and and uh, right so the the pandemic one is tough because i would classify that as an exogenous shock Those, I think, by definition, are somewhat unpredictable. But on that point, what's really important is that when the economy is accelerating, let's say you have leading indicators that are rising, your cyclical economy, the growth rates going from one to two to four, and the total economy is accelerating. Um, Those are situations when you can be hit by an exogenous shock, but chances are, uh, strong chances are, that the economy is going to sort of shrug that off. You may get a a 10% correction in the market, but it should snap back and then make a new all-time high relatively quickly. The best example of that would be Brexit. It was, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe it was June of 2016. The economy was starting to accelerate because we had, uh, at the end of 2015, we had a big China slowdown. In the beginning of 2016, oil fell to $20 a barrel. There was definitely a global manufacturing recession that was playing out. And then the economy started to reaccelerate through the beginning of 16. And then through the middle of 16, it was quite clear that the global manufacturing recession was ending and was going to start accelerating. We got hit with a exogenous shock, which was this surprise Brexit vote. The market, if my memory serves me correctly, fell 10% in a matter of two or three days. But at that time, you could have known that the economy, the underlying cyclical trends were accelerating, and that was likely to be a situation where the economy would shrug it off. If you take the the opposite, which was heading into COVID, and I admit this is somewhat of an extreme example because a lockdown and closing the economy is extreme, but let's go with the example of it just being another shock. Uh, The economy was basically on the cusp of a recession at the end of 2019. Uh, the Fed was cutting interest rates throughout 2019 before COVID ever ever happened. And if you got hit with any exogenous shock, didn't have to be as severe as COVID, that would have likely been sufficient to push the economy into recession either way. So the reason I give that context is because right now we're in a situation where leading indicators are deeply negative and your cyclical economy and your broader economy are trending at 1% or lower growth rates. So we're super vulnerable to any of these exogenous shocks, which would come as a surprise to me and to everybody, any shock that you do have is liable to throw the economy into recession because the initial conditions or the starting point is so fragile and so weak. Um, so with the, with the exogenous shock to the side, using the information that we have currently, it looks to me like um, some part of this real estate cycle is what's likely to lead to the most stress. Um, most specifically, it looks like commercial real estate, um, multifamily being lumped into that into that bucket. And the problem is that we're seeing issues crop up in the commercial real estate space without any credit stress. So no one is defaulting on their rent payments. Um, you know, tenants aren't um, aren't defaulting or not paying their bills. What's happening is because the cap rate or the interest rates have changed so much that when a building is up for refinance, even if it's perfect credit quality, if it's 100% occupied, that asset may still be valued significantly lower than what it was a year ago, two years ago, three years ago with no delinquencies and no credit stress at all. And it's becoming very difficult to refinance some of those assets. 
And then you have to figure out who's holding those assets. We all know at this point that a lot of that does reside on some of the smaller regional banks. Um, so that whole refinance cycle does look to be the, the most obvious, most glaring issue. Um, and uh, I heard a, uh, a funny statement that, that does end up proving true. And you, you hear the question all the time, where's the credit event going to be or, or where is it going to be? And, and the answer is, it's always real estate. Um, the, it always starts in real estate. That doesn't mean you know, who's holding the bag is different every time. But the issue is always real estate because it's inherently so leveraged and so cyclical and so tied to changes in monetary policy. So if I had to place a bet, I would say that the event is something in the real estate space. Who ends up holding the bag or suffering the losses on that, I think, is more of an open question um, that we'll find out over time. Yeah. Well, the link, right, especially for commercial real estate, there's that statistic. We've talked about it a good amount on the show, but something like 70% of commercial real estate debt is held by regional banks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that seems, it's like such a perfect storm, frankly. The only thing that gives me pause is it seems almost too obvious. Right? There's <laughs> right. already been stress in the, yeah. in the, in the, um, the banking sector. And now right. it's just, uh, and, it and, and it's super linked to what we were talking about in the beginning, which is this Southern apartment boom. So when you look at the balance sheet um, or, or the assets of a lot of these regional banks, there are a lot of commercial real estate loans. A lot of them are construction and land development loans for multifamily apartments. So yeah. we have this crazy boom that happened in construction of multifamily. A lot of that was financed by uh, regional bank lenders. Um, those construction projects will be completed, and then usually they have to be refinanced. And the macro outlook, the cap rate, um, you know, the conditions that those projects will have to refinance today are a lot different than they were 12 months ago, and a lot different than I'm sure most of these people had planned for when they decided to uh, move forward on these projects. Yeah. So, Eric, what you know. Usually when people talk about recession, you know, one of the first things that they talk about is the unemployment rate. And mm -hmm. that's something that that you and I have spoken about in the past, but you know, we haven't we haven't really brought it up very much at all during this conversation. And you know, you I'm I'm just looking at your your most recent research piece and you put out a a study of of jobless claims. So I'd I'd be curious, like, um, mm -hmm. can you just kind of walk us through what you found in, in that study and then maybe we could talk a little bit about, you know, when that's ultimately sure. much. So the unemployment rate is obviously a, a big, um, broad indicator of the cycle, but just like all of the other indicators that fall into that total economy or aggregate economy basket, um, they certainly don't lead the cycle. Um, and there's also the issue of how does the unemployment, look, unemployment rate look in real time? And how does the unemployment rate look uh, with the benefit of historical revisions? And a lot of times the unemployment rate around these recessionary periods is revised to show a sharper increase in the beginning of a recessionary period that we don't know of in real time. So we have a situation in the last uh, jobs report where we had a, a decent uptick in the unemployment rate, I think from maybe 3.4 to 3.7. Um, is that the start of the rise? Hard to tell. We also don't know if that's going to be revised to 3.9 or something like that. So it's difficult and I think it's inappropriate to use the unemployment rate as a barometer of whether the recession is here or not. There's a very popular uh, SOM rule, which um, takes the uh, how much has the unemployment rate increased from its 12-month low. And when you look at that indicator in real time, what you find is it's generally triggered several months after the recession already began. So it's a good confirming variable. That's why it's in you know what people would call a lagging indicator or, or a, you know, an aggregate economy indicator, but it's not something that would give us a, a, a genuine advanced warning, even a month warning. It's likely to be several months late. So the unemployment rate isn't what we should be using, in my opinion, to, to determine whether the recession has started or not, because it's incredibly common for a recession to begin while the unemployment rate is either at its dead lows or just a hair off of its dead lows. So we can do a little bit better by using this leading cyclical um, and then total sequence. But if we wanted to narrow it down to one variable, we can do a little bit better by studying the initial and continued jobless claims data. 
And the reason I think that that data is more important to focus on is because it's actual filings. Um, it's not a modeled number like the birth death number, and it's not a survey where they're calling people and saying, are you employed? Are you not employed? Which, by the way, the survey responses to these popular government surveys have crashed, you know, where people are only, you know, 30% response rates, 40% response rates, where it was 60 or 70 before COVID. So huh. is, is, the, is the data less reliable because the response rate has come down a lot? You know, we don't know, but it, it certainly gives you that, that suspicion. So, Eric, uh, sorry to interrupt, but is, is yeah, there a reason? Do they know why that response rate has come down so much? Uh, I, I don't know for sure. I think it perhaps has something to do with work from home and, and various mm. changes like that. I can't say for sure. All I know is Got that it. the response rate has come down for a lot of different surveys. So when we look at the initial or continued jobless claims data, it's actual filings. The initial jobless claims would be when you when you submit your initial claim and then the continued claims data would be our most reliable because that's when you're actually receiving money. Um, so that should be a good barometer of where we're at. The other important thing is that the seasonal adjustments for all economic data has been wildly distorted in the post-COVID period because if you recall, at least where, where, where I live and I think you live in, in, in the New York area, in um, November and December of 2021, we had a large breakout of, uh, of COVID. I think it was the Omicron variant. Yep. And that obviously caused significant shifts in people doing their um, holiday spending, which is a huge driver of these seasonal adjustments. So now, and then you, know, you had a breakout earlier in the summer of 2021 in, you know, with the Delta variant. So you had these sort of stops and starts where people would, would, would kind of go into quasi-lockdown, come out of quasi-lockdown. And when you're comparing the data to those periods, and then you're trying to do these normal seasonal adjustments, it's coming out that the data is, the seasonal adjustments themselves are getting kind of erratic um, because it's, it's difficult to, to incorporate some of that. So what I do when I look at the initial and continued jobless claims data is I look at the non-seasonally adjusted data and I try and compare it directly to the week uh, a year ago, two years ago. So, you know, in week nine of every year, how do the initial claims look like? So we're, we're removing the survey issues, we're removing the modeling issues, and we're trying to remove the seasonal adjustment issues. And when we do that, we see that around week nine of this year, week nine of 2023, which just happens to be the first week of March when we had our Silicon Valley banking issue, we saw the initial jobless claims inflect higher. And what I mean by that is the non-seasonally adjusted level of initial jobless claims for 2023 is higher than the same week in 22, 2019, and 2018. So if you don't like your 2022 numbers because you don't think those are accurate, then let's go to 2019 and 2018. And let's use our pre-COVID baseline. The level of initial jobless claims today is higher than your 2019 and 2018 baseline. And your level of continued jobless claims is, is also higher than your average of 2019 and 2018. And when you say how much higher, uh, specifically for the continued claims, the level of continued claims today is about 11% higher than the average of 22, 2019, and 2018. That is historically consistent with recessionary start periods. And then you say, okay, well, is it one state that's driving it? What's, what's driving the level of initial claims increase? So what I do is I also look at the, the breadth of how many states are showing this recessionary increase in claims to sort of tease out, is it one state that's driving it or is it becoming more widespread? And what we find is that at the beginning of the year, week one, two, three, and four, you only had about one out of 20 states that had a recessionary level of initial jobless, uh, continued jobless claims. And I define that as 10% higher than the average of 22, 19, and 18. As we've moved through the year, that's steadily increased with somewhat of a upward inflection to the point where now one out of three states, so 33% of states 
have a level of continued jobless claims more than 10% higher than the pre-COVID baseline. So when we see the labor market data, um, the, in my opinion, most reliable initial, initial and continued jobless claims data is showing a totally objective, clear-cut inflection around ninth or 10th week of this year with a magnitude that's rising and a breadth that's widening also. So the level is going up and more states are showing levels of labor market stress. So that's what I see in the uh, labor market data as, as evidence that the, um, the numbers that we're receiving on the non-farm payrolls, like plus 339,000, those are not the numbers that we should be looking at. Those often don't turn negative until a recession begins. And there's some questions as to the reliability of that data. If you really want to drill down, and I do this every week in my weekly updates for clients, as I'm looking closely at this initial and continued jobless claims data, because I think it's going to be our most real-time proxy on the stress that's developing in the labor market. Yeah, it's it's such a good analysis and call out. I mean, the you know the jobs report that came out last week, I think, confused some people. We had a a blowout jobs report, and at the same time, we had unemployment go up. And uh, at least for me, that certainly did make me uh, scratch my head uh, right. and just double check about how all this how right. all this data goes together. And I'm and I'm glad you brought that up. And I think this is an important point to highlight. Part of my process and what I think the value that I bring is that exactly what you said is what happened. Is you had the unemployment rate go up. You had the household survey show a loss of jobs. You had the non-farm payroll number show a huge gain in jobs. So what do we do? Like, how do we know? Was it a good report? Was it a bad report? Well, if you're a bull, you'll look at the non-farm payrolls. If you're a bear, you'll take the household. Um, what I do, and again, this goes back to that leading cyclical total, is I look at a basket. I look at a collection of uh, variables, whether it's leading variables, cyclical variables, but I also do this for various sectors like employment. So I'm looking at a what I would call a coincident basket of employment indicators. That way, we don't have to pick and choose. We can just look at the whole collective basket because like I said, one number could go up, but the whole basket is unlikely to move in a way that's contrary to the cycle. So when I look at the employment report that came out, I'm looking at both surveys household survey and establishment survey. I'm also looking at the unemployment rate. I'm also looking at aggregate weekly hours because we have to look at how many hours are these people working. If you're adding employees, but they're working less hours, your, your economy's net cumulative hours could be going down. That's not a good thing. Um, so you have to look at your aggregate hours. And then I also take the claims data and I look at they publish what's called the insured unemployment rate, which comes from the claim data. So I take that basket of five labor market indicators, all big, broad, reliable data points for the most part. And what that tells me is the, uh, so when I updated it for the, the report that came out on Friday, the growth rate, so I, I, I take that basket, I put them all together, I index them, and I look at it as one composite. The growth rate declined to 0.7% for that employment basket, which is the lowest growth rate of this entire economic cycle. And going back to 1960, that index has never contracted. It's never fallen below zero without the economy already being in a recession. And we're currently at 0.7%. So we're right on the cusp. Again, this is just so many different variables that are saying the same thing. Um, so there was a lot of messiness in that report, but we can really do a lot to filter out this noise by looking at composite baskets and then taking the signal from the whole basket rather than just picking and choosing which one we like the best. And um, you know, I publish all this stuff to clients, of course. And, and what I can tell you is that the last jobs report on balance showed a drop in that coincident index on a month-on-month -month basis. So I would be able to objectively say that it was actually a bad report, even though the headline number was so good, that basket of five went down, not up. What's going on, everybody? Thank you for listening to On The Margin. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know about a very special offer that we have coming out of BlockWorks Research. Now, many of you will probably be familiar with our platform, but BlockWorks Research is the most blue chip spot to get research, data, governance, models, and a whole lot more about the leading DeFi protocols in the space. I've leaned on our analysts time and time again to explain complicated concepts going on in DeFi to me like I'm five years old, 
they can do the same for you. If you invest in DeFi or are just interested in it, it is an absolute no-brainer. As a listener of On The Margin, and to say thank you all for listening to the show, you can use Margin 10 for a 10% discount, and that gives you access to everything, which would be weekly in-depth reports, live data, all of that good stuff. So again, that's code MARGIN10 for a 10% discount. Link is in the show notes. Sign up now. Thank you later. Just in closing, you know, there's a difference in between, I think, what we can say actually matters in the economy and like sort of your way of looking at things. But we also know that the Fed has the way that mm-hmm. they like to look at things as well. Right. They've got their own indicators that they pay a lot of attention to. So, you know, I I, I don't I know no one has a, a crystal ball here, obviously, right? But mm-hmm. you know, the the sort of other side of everything that we've mentioned so far, you know, you, you could could sort of look at things and say, well, you know, we've made it through probably the majority of this hiking cycle. Maybe if they leave rates here for a while, that's definitely a probability and probably the base case, I would say. But, you know, we've sort of made it through the the bulk of it. It does look like inflation is sort of turning over. You know, there's kind of the way that you think about the economy, but then how are you thinking that the Fed is thinking right. about this? And if you had to try to guess at how they're going to react, I mean, what do you think they're going to do right. from here? So it's sort of like, what what should they do versus what will they what do? What will they do, right? yeah. And, yeah. And, you know, just, just going with the what should they do, I think that they should have paused uh, probably December of last year. So I don't mm-hmm. think they should have done uh, the hike um, this year or the, the last two, really, um, because the economy was convincingly on the cusp of recession by that December meeting um, based on the, the framework that I have. And again, you got to remember the lags here with is, you know, they stopped hiking interest rates in the summer of 06. Right. You know, then they started cutting in the summer of 07. And people have this ingrained reflex that when they start cutting, the cycle is going to turn around. And, you know, the cycle didn't bottom until 09. Right. That was when the, uh, you know, some parts of the economy and the markets really bottomed. But then the real estate cycle kind of didn't bottom until like 11 or almost in 2012. Right. So it's, it's good context for, you know, the Fed could cut really hard. And it might not solve anything. Although we have this sort of reflex that it always solves things, it's not the case historically. A lot of times the Fed, I'm sure you've seen the tables that have been floating around, which show you that the market declines the most after the cutting cycle begins, right? But everyone's so bullish of if they cut, we got to buy, we got to buy stocks, right? Um, So what should they do? They should have been on pause already, in my view. Um, out of abundance of caution of, of the trajectory of the cycle and the fact that these lags will continue to come through. They absolutely will continue to come through, even if they don't hike anymore, even if they start cutting, the lags will still come through. Um, so that's what they probably should have done. Uh, but now what will they do? The problem is that, as we all know at this point, they're focused on unemployment and inflation, two things that you know, concretely go into a basket of lagging economic indicators. It's partly why the Fed always makes mistakes. It's why the Fed has a tendency to boom the booms and bust the busts because they're reacting to data that they have the least control over. They have the most control over that leading indicators because it's so impacted by changes in monetary aggregates and and changes in interest rates, which they do have a lot of control over. So they're not focused on the variables they do have control over. They're focused on the lagging variables they don't have control over, which is problematic. Um, they have a they have a situation on their hands that they've sort of created on their own, which was that they were late to the inflation problem, and they lost some credibility um, in that uh, process. And now they're trying to make up for the credibility by hiking rates more in terms of magnitude, which they did. Um, And now they're trying to sort of hold on to that credibility or regain more of that credibility by refusing to lower interest rates until they see the inflation numbers return back to target or until they see the employment numbers fall. The problem with that is inflation, when we go through this, you know, leading cyclical total. If you had one more component, that's where inflation is. Inflation (laughs) lags the business cycle. So inflation troughs. So when people are saying like they've made a lot of progress on inflation, inflation may reaccelerate from here. Not if you have a recession because inflation bottoms 
usually one year after the recession ends. So to give you the context, we had the recession in 08, 09. Inflation didn't bottom until 11 or 12, right? So you could have a very long lag between the bottom and inflation and the recession ending. So we're not even close to the end of this decline in inflation if the economy does go into a full recession, which is my view. Um, the problem, though, is that the Fed's not going to get the evidence that they want, which is a crash in inflation or a crash in jobs, prior to the recession beginning. That's going to be a an inflation's case when the recession's over, and in the jobs case, probably in the middle of the recession. So in my view, what's likely to happen is the Fed is not going to have the ability to react to uh, success on the jobs front or success on the inflation front What's most likely to happen is you're going to see the market realize this situation is about to unfold. You'll have some degree of market stress. Where that comes is, is unclear, but you'll have some degree of market stress, and then the Fed will eventually respond to the market stress. Um, recessions very commonly begin when core inflation is three, four, five, six percent. Um, so uh, it was a little bit of a a sidestep around your question, but I, I think that the, I think what's going to prompt the Fed into action is more of a financial market event versus we've got success on the unemployment rate. We can now start cutting rates because I think that sort of implies that the unemployment rate can go from three to four to five, and then the market will then react to the to that rate happening. When I think what's what's most likely to happen is the markets will have an event in anticipation of those things occurring and the Fed will have to respond to that. Yeah, I that makes all the sense in the world, Eric. I um I know I know we're running a little short on time here. And you know, I'm sure folks will probably be familiar with uh with you at this point. You've been on the the program a couple of times now. But um just in case folks folks aren't or this is the first time you guys are listening to Eric, Eric, could you just talk a little bit about about EPB research and how folks can follow you or find out more, subscribe to the the good work that you do? Yeah, thank you. And thank you for always giving me a chance to uh show some of my work on on your platform. So EPBresearch.com is, is the website. You can follow me on Twitter. That's probably the best place. I'm pretty active on there. I do share a lot of work. Um, so obviously, I provide business cycle research. Uh, I have a weekly publication that goes out to clients. And then I have a more uh, premium subscription, which would include uh, monthly and quarterly uh, deep dives on the business cycle. I also um, wrap that business cycle analysis into asset markets and sort of contextualize for clients uh, what's your level of business cycle risk today? What's the level of compensation you're receiving in the market? And do those two things align? So for context today, you have a very extreme level of business cycle risk based on the framework that I have, but you have a very low level of compensation in markets in terms of credit spreads or things like that. So I would come to the conclusion that you're not being properly compensated for the level of business cycle risk that's out there. So those are the types of things that I publish and put out to clients. EPBresearch.com, I have a blog where I publish a lot of free samples. And then on Twitter, you can find a lot of charts and, and one-offs and things like that. So that's the best place to find me. And again, Mike, I really do appreciate you giving me the chance to show some of this stuff. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for coming on, Eric. Honestly, I learned something every single time we talk. So yeah, we can link we can link the website uh, down here. And guys, highly recommend that you go and check out Eric's stuff. So right. Thanks for keep up the great work at Blockworks. You guys are really killing it. Oh, right back at you, my yeah. friend. Thanks so much. Appreciate Thanks. you. All right. See ya.